Well, we're beginning a new series this morning on the life of David. It's called Ordinary Man, Extraordinary King. And as we think about that, um, I'm, I'm thinking mostly about the nature of David as he stands up next to some other significant figures in the Bible. See, David is seen as, as being a pretty significant figure scripturally. Uh, there's some characters like Moses and Abraham that when you hear their names, you just recognize that they come with a little more importance in the scripture. Uh, this is one of those guys who, like Abraham, reminds me of that famous Ron Burgundy quote from the Anchorman, where he says, do you know who I am? I don't think you know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. People know me. I am very important. I have many leather-bound books, and my office smells of rich mahogany. Well, I think there's actually an argument to be made for David as the most significant figure in the Old Testament. He's an important guy. In fact, Brever Child said that it is difficult to overestimate the importance for the biblical tradition of David, who rivals Moses in significance for the entire canon or Bible. Now, David is the spirit-anointed king, or Messiah, Uh, the same word for Christ, who prepared the way for a greater coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. So there's a sense in which every time we read Christ in the New Testament, it is reminding us that Jesus is that long-awaited Messiah who fulfills what David promised. Now, as a Christian, and as Christians, we know that even what we are called means Messiah ones. So there's a sense in which, even as Christians, we are hearkened back to a history that begins with David. Now, when I was in seminary, one of my Old Testament professors was talking about the nature of kingship, and he told us that he thought that that kingship was really something that God permitted, but it wasn't really part of God's original plan. And, And he used 1 Samuel 8, which is in the book that we're going to be going through this semester, and, and he, he pointed to the text there where the people are asking Samuel for a king like the nations to judge them. And God tells Samuel that they have not rejected Samuel in asking for this, but they have rejected God himself. And so he looks at that and he says, well, it looks like here that Samuel is saying that according to God, kingship is a bad thing. It's kind of like God's plan B. Here's a problem. When you read 1 Samuel 2.10, Samuel's mom speaks, and as she's praying, she says this, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So, so you get these two pictures. Sammy's saying it looks like if it's taken the way that my professor said that kingship is bad. But Sammy's mom is saying, I think kingship is good. So which one is it? Are they, are they sort of fighting with one another? Is kingship good or bad? I think that's a question we need to answer up front. Well, I believe that kingship is part of God's original plan. In fact, I believe there's an argument to be made that the first eight books of the Bible are preparing the way for the anointing of King David. It's it's building up. Uh, You'll notice in Genesis 3.15 that right after man sins against God, God makes a promise that there would be a coming seed who would undo the works of Satan. Now, in Genesis 17, God is speaking to Abraham, who he's made a covenant with. And he says, I want you to know that that seed is going to come from you and that kings will come from him. And then as you carry along in the narrative, you'll notice that this storyline continues. Moses, as he was leading Israel in the desert, tells them in Deuteronomy 17, 15, he tells Israel, the tribes of Israel, when they possess the land the Lord gives them, he says, you may then indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. 
And after Joshua led Israel to conquer the promised land, God used spirit-empowered judges or deliverers to rescue his people. Now, judges seem to be preparing the way for showing how David is greater than Saul. Now, here's how that goes. If you read the book of Judges, what you'll find is even there, it seems like the framework of Judges is set up to prepare us for the greatness of David over Saul. See, David's tribe is Judah, and they in this book are pictured is providing the ideal judge Othniel in Judges 1 to 3. He is the great judge, the, the model judge who really does act according to the will of God. Israel, throughout the book, as we go throughout Judges, sins more and more and things get worse and worse. And it seems that creation is coming undone until the last chapters of Judges where Saul's tribe, Gibeah, is pictured as a people who rape and murder a Levite's concubine and then carry off the daughters of Shiloh for themselves as a picture of this reality that is repeated throughout the end of Judges, you remember it, there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in their own eyes. Saul's people highlighted this reality. David's people were the model ideal judges. In fact, when you turn to the next book, the book of Ruth, it looks like such a love story, right? Isn't it one of the most beautiful books in the Bible? And we see this story about how Boaz, this uh, man from Judah, redeems the barren widow Moabitess Ruth, but she gives birth in the end to Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Do you see it? How, how all throughout we are preparing for the, the unrivaling of, of this, this King David who would come and who would rescue his people. God's been preparing the way for a king. So why is it bad that Israel asked for a king in 1 Samuel 8? Well, 1 Samuel 8.18, I believe, clarifies it. It says this, And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. In other words, God wasn't against kingship. No, God, he was against Israel choosing a king for themselves rather than God choosing his king. See, Israel chose a king for themselves like the kings of the nations. Saul, a tall, handsome, debonair ruler who everyone looked at and immediately said, that's what a king looks like. But in Samuel, 1 Samuel 16 that we're looking at today, what we're going to find is that God chooses his spirit-anointed king based on his heart, not his height. That's how God chooses his king. God chooses his spirit-anointed king based on his heart, not his height. He does not look at what man looks at. And we'll see this in a couple of points. The first is this. God's king looks so ordinary in verses 1 to 12. He he looks so ordinary in verses 1 to 12. Uh, You'll notice a number of ordinary realities about him. First, in verse 1, you notice that he comes from an insignificant city. You'll remember there that was just read that he is said to go and meet Samuel. He wants to go out, him to go out and meet Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, Jesse is in Bethlehem. And you'll notice in verse 1 that God really gives his purpose for going there. He says, I have provided for myself a king. This is his, his, his emphasis in this chapter. I have chosen my king. You chose yours, now I'm choosing mine. And this is what my king is going to be like. Now God chooses his king. As Samuel is grieving the failure for his anointed king Saul, God tells him that the time to grieve is over. And he sends him to anoint the new king, who right out of the gate seems to be different than Saul. 
He doesn't look like Saul. See, Saul came from Kish, a family who seems to be associated with wealth and power. Saul had won the People's Choice Award. He probably would have shown up in GQ. And God here, you'll notice, sends Samuel to Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, you'll remember, if you don't know anything about Bethlehem, that 200 years later, the prophet Micah would speak of Bethlehem and its insignificance. How insignificant Bethlehem is. And in Micah 5, 2, he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Of course, this speaks of a future Messiah after David who would come. But in context, Micah, notice he's highlighting just how insignificant this city is and how unlikely it would be for this city to provide any kind of royal line. But not only that, take note that this king had an ignoble pedigree. An ignoble pedigree in verses 2 to 5. Look there with me again at those verses, and, and here's what they say. He says, they say this. It says, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. See, Samuel is concerned that Saul's a little suspicious of him. And this is really probably due to his most recent interaction with him. Now, you'll remember that Saul served 42 years as king, but his fall from grace happens in just three chapters. In fact, in chapter 13, he offers sacrifices himself as a priest instead of waiting from Samuel. In chapter 14, he makes a foolish oath against eating before battle, which would have led to his son Jonathan's death if the people had not interceded for him. And then in chapter 15, Saul fails to kill all of the Amalekites and their beasts as God commanded. And I love the way that scene plays out. Saul is commanded, I want you to go and wipe out the Amalekites, all of their people, and all of their beasts. And uh, Samuel comes and says, what have you done? Why did you not obey God? And he's like, me? What? I obeyed God. He's like, really? He's like, did you kill everyone and all the sheep? He's like, absolutely. He's like, well, then what is the bleeding of the sheep that I hear in the background? In other words, it was obvious that this guy had not obeyed God, this king. And that's when Samuel turns to him and says in 1 Samuel 15, 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And then we are told that Samuel hacked the Amalekite king to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And that was the last time Samuel saw Saul. So I don't know what kind of feeling Saul was having is, you know, last time he saw Samuel, sounds like it was pretty rough. But you can see why Saul might have been a little bit of paranoid of Samuel traveling without a good reason. He just said that God has rejected him as king. Of course, I think there's also a sense in which sin does this to us, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed how sin tends to make people paranoid and distrustful of others? You fear being discovered. You sin to hide your sin. You question the motives of others. Your soul is restless. 
And that's exactly the kind of picture that we get of Saul throughout. So the Lord tells Samuel to take a sacrifice as a legitimate reason to visit Jesse and his sons. Now the elders are trembling in verse 4 when they see Samuel approaching. Now why is that? Well, there have been a number of reasons that have been given. Uh, Maybe it's that they heard about Agog, and he got chopped up, and maybe they're thinking, like, who's next? Or it could be that sometimes, often, when a prophet shows up, it's not a good thing. It's kind of like when you see blue lights behind you, even though you know you're going the speed limit. You're wondering, maybe there's something I've done that I didn't know I did. Well, that seems to be the kind of thing maybe that's going on in their hearts. But they are trembling as Samuel comes before them, and he tells them that he's come in peace. And to concentrate, consecrate themselves, which usually involved a, a washing, a kind of purification, uh, they would have refrained from, from sexual activity, and they would have refrained from touching dead things, but they were preparing for this sacrifice. But I think there may be another clue highlighting the ignoble pedigree of David as well here. In fact, David Firth picks up on this when he says this. He says, because the elders consecrate themselves... But Samuel consecrates Jesse and his son separately. It, it may suggest that this was not a family of sufficient importance for routine involvement with the elders and the prophet. Seems to be a lowly family. So this future king hailed from a backwoods town with an ignoble pedigree, but he also had, in verses 6 to 7, an unimpressive stature. Did, did you catch that? Now you remember that Saul was tall, and Samuel thought that Eliab looked like an unbelievable human specimen. I mean, I'm sure the guy uh, that is walking in in verses 6 to 7 probably had like background music when he showed up, right? People were like, wow, everybody drops their jaw like that. That's what a man looks like. And Samuel says, that, that is what a king looks like. We're done here. We're good. Like, see him? That's, that's not even hard, God. But you'll find that in that moment, God actually speaks back and says, That is not the man. That is not the king that I have in mind. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says this, When they came, he, being Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, man looks at the height, but God looks at the heart. Even Samuel, a man acting as judge, prophet, and priest in this day, can't pick God's anointed out of a lineup. Do you see the irony here? If this is the best of the best that we have to see what a king looks like, God says, you can't see as God sees. In fact, catch how Samuel finally arrived at God's man in verses 8 to 13. This man wasn't tall, and he wasn't even the most important son in this ignoble family in this backwoods town. Uh, We find that he is the least important son, the unimportant son in verses 8 to 12. This is what he says. He says, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, 
for this is he. Samuel passes on the first seven sons, each time saying, neither has the Lord chosen this one, neither has the Lord chosen this one, neither has the Lord chosen this one. So for some reason, Jesse didn't even bother at any point in this whole dialogue to consider his youngest son who is out in the field. He's like, surely it can't be him. It's not David. In fact, the word here for youngest is interesting in verse 11. It could also mean smallest or most insignificant. In fact, God literally chose the smallest here over the tallest, the youngest over the oldest. Typically, the the oldest son would receive the blessing. He was the one to whom uh, the inheritance would typically have first rights. But here he chooses David. See, right social order was for the older brother to receive the blessing, but David joins a line of younger brothers chosen by God outside of conventional order, like Seth and Noah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Ephraim and Moses. See, God clearly didn't hold David's looks against him either. You'll notice that he didn't choose the most likely candidate, but it's not that he said, I'm looking for the least attractive candidate either. He's looking at the heart. You notice he was ruddy, which likely means that he had red hair, maybe a really good tan, maybe both, I don't know. And he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. But God's clear. He didn't choose him because he was the choice that made sense to Samuel. Even his own father, Jesse, couldn't see it in him. And yet God sees to the heart. God chose David for what only he could see. God chose David based on his heart, not his height. See, God sent Samuel to anoint the least son of an ignoble people hailing from an insignificant city to be God's king over God's people. Of course, this is how God has always chosen in surprising ways. If you've read through the Bible, you've seen this. God is constantly choosing in ways that you would not expect. He didn't choose Israel because they were great, did he? But because they were small and insignificant, that his glory might be made known through him. He loved to display power and weakness. Likewise, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, that he didn't choose many wise, powerful, or noble according to worldly standards, but he chose the foolish, weak, and despised of this world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I don't know about you, but I am so glad that he said foolish, weak, and despised. Because I can at any given moment relate to all of those. And yet by the grace of God, he chose sinners like us to make his glory known through in every area that he sends us. But don't miss this. Here, God is specifically choosing David for a particular role. It's not David's salvation here. David is an instrument of the salvation of God amongst his people as king. He is choosing him as king, and he looks to King David's heart for whether or not he would be the kind of king that should lead God's people. Now, don't miss this. Important note here about the nature of how God sees. Did you notice that God sees your very heart? God looks to the heart of his people. You might look a certain way before others because of the way that you have been created, the way that you dress, the money that you have, the vehicle that you drive. But for God, God sees you as you are to your very heart. Your actions might even, for the most part, look to be very moral and upright, but God sees the secret things that reside deep in your soul that no one will ever see. That's the nature of our God. 
He sees our thoughts. He sees your motives. He sees our loves. He sees the things that we dream about. That's our God. And God is sovereign even over our thoughts. He has lordship over the things that we think about. Did you know that? That God's, his, his sovereignty just doesn't extend to what you do with your hands. It extends to the things that you think about with your mind and the way that you think about others with your mind. In fact, in Colossians 3, 1-2, Paul highlights this, saying, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds. Did you catch that? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is a king who says, I care what you think about. I care what you dream about. I want you to dream about the things that I dream about. How are you doing at cultivating a thought life, a dream life, a love life, a heart that lives under the gaze of an all-seeing God? How are you doing that? You know, our words and our actions reveal only part of our hearts. So what do your words and actions say about your heart? And even more than that, What do those things that reside in your heart that never make it into words or actions say about your heart? Are you fighting for a heart that pleases God? Well, I wonder here what it was that God saw in David's heart. Well, we know that he wasn't sinless. He's clearly a sinner. He's a sinner who, who confessed before God, I was born in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me? This is a man who acknowledged himself as a sinner. But the main point of this text, I believe, just the the plain reading, is that God chose his own king. And he chose him based on his ability to see man's heart, not just his height. So what was it about David's heart that was attractive to God? Or that said, this is the one that I believe would make a a good king for my people. Fortunately, we have a vision of David's heart on display in the Psalms, where he left us with his heart songs to God. And if you read through Psalms, you'll learn a lot about the nature of David's heart, won't you? I think that some of this is about David having a heart that was for God and God alone. But we see a lot of other things that come from that. Notice in Psalm 19 that he says that he sees God's word as being sweeter than honey and more valuable than precious metals. I just ask you today, I mean, if you had the choice between a little bit of extra apple stock and the word of God, what would be more exciting to you? What do our lives say about what we are excited about? He, David said that God's word was sweeter than honey. More desirable, not just than food, but the best food. The sweetest food. He said, I'll, I'll pass up on sweet honey every day to have more of the word of God. That's the heart of this king that, that God called In Psalm 23, he said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He trusted in God's provision when times were good and when times were bad. He trusted that his shepherd would provide for him. See, God is the best shepherd and he'll care for all of my needs. I trust God's heart even when I can't trace his hands. He worshipped God and sang his praises throughout the Psalms. He taught God's word to the next generation. He loved God's people and saw a future for the nations in which God would be glorified to and through even them. And even when he sinned greatly as an adulterer and murderer, he didn't justify himself like Saul did. No, when he was confronted by Nathan in Psalm 51, he cried out, Have mercy on me, 
O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. See, he was the kind of king who also longed for a greater Messiah that would come after him. But that's the man. That's the man that we find Samuel anointing in verse 13. Now, look at verse 13 with me again. Because here we see a transition where the Spirit is going to come upon David and it's going to leave Saul. So there's a transition in the storyline of 1 Samuel. So look there. Here's what he says. He says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now here we see that the Spirit rushes upon David and it leaves Saul. Now first notice in verse 13 that we just read that David's anointed with oil and the Spirit rushes upon him. See, Samuel anointed David with, with oil. Now commentator Robert Brown, he, he was explaining what this symbolized and he says this, as the oil would work its way into the individual's hair and pores, It symbolized the divine presence entering into the one being anointed. Now, the Hebrew for anoint is Messiah. As we said before, Messiah is the translation of the anointed one. And so David was God's Messiah. But also, notice that after Samuel anointed David with oil, we're told the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So God anointed David with the Spirit, and the Spirit would never depart from David as the Lord's anointed. Uh, Again, in Psalm 51, after he sinned, Nathan confronts him, and you know that David is fearful, because you'll remember what happened when Saul sinned greatly. But here, he prays, David prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Here's Here's what happens. The Lord never takes his Spirit from David. He always has his Spirit. Now, don't miss the point of the Spirit here. In the Old Testament, the Spirit empowered people for certain tasks. So God filled Bezaliel. You'll remember him. In Exodus 31, we're told the Spirit of God filled him up to accomplish the workmanship for his tabernacle. And then in Judges, if you read through there, you'll, you'll, you'll see that periodically and sporadically, God would send his Spirit to raise up judges to deliver his people from danger. So the Spirit was sent for those particular moments in history to serve God in particular tasks. In other words, the Spirit is not given here on David in the way that he was given in the New Testament to seal believers. No, the Spirit was given for the particular task of kingship. Here the Spirit comes upon David to empower him as God's anointed king over God's people to bring justice inside and protect them from outside enemies. He is God's original Spirit-anointed king. Now, we see this in verses 14 to 23 as well. We see the the reflection or the influence of this. Notice, first, that the Spirit departs from Saul in verse 14. Look there with me. This is what it says. Now, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, you probably caught that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and probably honed on really quickly that harmful spirit from the Lord that replaced it. In fact, some of your translations, versions, uh, probably say that it was an evil spirit from the Lord. Uh, But the word here for evil, it can mean a range of things, everything from something that is miserable 
uh, to something that is morally evil. And I think that my ESV and other translations get it right when they call this a, a kind of misery or a judgment spirit that is sent upon him. In fact, one commentator said this. He said it's better to interpret as a kind of spirit of misery, saying this, we interpret it this way not to mean that the Lord sent a morally corrupt demon, but an angel of judgment against Saul that caused him to experience constant misery. As David Firth also writes, an important fact, the Old Testament is seldom concerned with secondary causation. And since Yahweh is Lord of all, the Spirit is seen as coming from him. In other words, God is unblushingly sovereign in the book of First and Second Samuel. He, he, they never apologize for the kind of authority that God has. And so if there is a harmful spirit that is coming upon Saul, they have no problem seeing it as God. Now at the same time, later what we'll find is, is that Saul is still held responsible for his actions while afflicted by the Spirit. If you read in 1 Samuel 18, 10 to 11, and 19, 10, Saul is held accountable for what happens as he's under the influence of this harmful spirit. So in the same way that Exodus 9 says the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart, right before saying, and the Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord, here there's a sense in which Saul is, is actually finding himself amidst a spiritual war in which he is spiritually attacked, but he is also held accountable for the decisions that he makes. The Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart. Both are true. So there is a real sense here in which Saul is responsible for his misery, but the Lord also sovereignly sent a spirit to create his misery as a result of his sins. Now, don't miss this. We are all completely responsible for our hearts. But our hearts and we as humans are not as sovereign over our hearts as we think. Do you see that in the text? Saul was not independent and uh, unbridled by any kind of outside influences on his heart so that he could just do whatever he wanted. He was actually called and compelled to be under the lordship of Christ or lordship of God. And when he didn't, he found himself under the influence of an evil or a bad, harmful spirit that plagued him. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, it may feel as though you are in control of your not putting your faith in Christ, of your not trusting Christ for salvation, of not really believing that you need a Savior, of believing that you're basically good. Uh, you might think that those are thoughts that are completely free to you, that you aren't influenced from outside spiritual forces. But the Bible tells us that there is actually a spiritual war that is going on that is actually strongly influencing us day by day and moment by moment. We see the same thing happening with Saul. Saul experienced the spirit of judgment. And every person, according to the Bible, needs a special work of the Holy Spirit to bring them to life for them to love God on God's terms. If we want to have a heart from God, we need God. If we want to love God as we want and see God as he is and see others as we ought to as God sees them, we need God himself to work a miracle in us by the power of his spirit. It's just as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again or regenerated by the Holy Spirit to receive eternal life and love as God created you to love. Only God can help you do that. So if you haven't put your faith in Christ today, and you want to dare God to change your heart, I'd love to talk to you after the service today about how you can put your faith in Jesus Christ and become a new creature. But there's a third thing that we see here, and that's that Saul is dependent on God's anointed king. 
We see that in verses 15 to 23. Saul is dependent on God's anointed king. I'm not sure how Saul's servants diagnosed that this torment came from God or that music would help him. I'm pretty sure they didn't Google it. But they didn't know, they just seemed to know that, hey, you've got a problem. It's, an, it's, a, it's a harmful spirit from God. Okay, we know that. And also, you need music to fix it. So Saul says, yeah, send me the kid with the sheep, right? See, Saul tells his servants to bring him someone who can play well. And catch how they describe David. In verses 18 and 19, this is what they say of him. They've heard of him, and it says this. It says, One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. I love it. He gets this glowing resume for David. And he says, look, just send me somebody with a harp. I don't need to hear about the greatness of David. I'm the greatest man in my, my whole like, dream life and thought life. Don't, don't go and puff this guy up. Go get the guy who's out with the sheep and bring him here to help the king. Not even Saul can recognize in this moment the Lord's anointed. Did you see it? Samuel couldn't recognize him. His dad, Jesse, couldn't recognize him. Here, King Saul, who is going to be replaced by him, cannot recognize him, the Lord's anointed. His replacement, he's actually inviting him into the throne room. Who would have thought that? Mostly kings would king people who are going to replace him. Here he's inviting him in. He's blind to the purposes of God and sees David as nothing more than a shepherd. In fact, verse 21 says, Saul loved David greatly and David received the coveted position of his armor bearer, someone he trusted immensely. And then he asked David if he can stay in his service. In verse 22, because he's done so well, he, he found favor in Saul's sight. And catch what verse 23 says. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. What a beautiful illustration of David. David is just strumming his harp as God places him on his throne. Throughout 1 Samuel, we'll see that Saul is a jealous tyrant looking to rid himself of David. But you can't miss the irony. Saul's tormenting spirit makes him completely dependent upon God's spirit-anointed King David or shepherd, depending on how you see David. Whether you see him as a king or a shepherd, he is completely dependent upon him. Now, of course, the New Testament teaches that a greater David from Bethlehem has arrived. It announces that one that Isaiah 53 foretold who had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He has arrived. Matthew 1.1 says that the one who is the son of David, the son of Abraham, has come to us. It is Jesus who is the Christ. He is the greater one than David that we have longed for, that David got us ready for. Even Jesus' own family, like David, did not see his greatness, did not recognize him as the Messiah. In fact, in Matthew 3... Jesus receives a greater anointing from God the Father 
himself as John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. So there was a great anointing for David. There is a greater anointing that takes place here for Jesus. If you read there, you'll remember that when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, he comes out of the water and the heavens open up. The Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove and rests on him. And the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is my King. This is the one that you have been waiting for. He was born, of course, of the Spirit and Mary. So this isn't saying in Matthew 3 that he didn't have the Spirit, but the Spirit comes here. That's adoptionism. That's not what's being taught. Now, this is the public anointing of Jesus as the long-awaited Christ. But there's more here, I believe. See, Ezekiel foresaw a day in his prophecy, in his book, when a new covenant would arrive with new and better promises, not just for the king, but for the king's people at large. So you remember Joel 2, 28-32 spoke of a day when the Spirit would be generously poured out on all flesh, man and woman alike. Boy and girl alike would receive the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. Not just prophets and priests and kings, but all of the people of this king would receive this Spirit. In fact, Ezekiel 36, 26 speaks of this day when the Spirit would come out. And he speaks of it in terms of a new heart. And he says this, On that day, Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, Jesus is a spirit-anointed king who not only has the spirit in a way that surpasses any that preceded him, but he also is able uniquely to give out his spirit to his people, giving them his Holy Spirit is a seal upon your hearts and also to give you new hearts. In fact, this is exactly what we find happening at Pentecost in Acts 2. David looked for the Christ who would be raised from the dead. That's what Peter preaches about. You remember David? David saw this one, this Christ who would come and would be raised from the dead. And when Peter preached to them, it says that they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. Hearts that were cut, almost like circumcision before the Lord. Not saying that's what's happening, but then it says, Peter responds and tells them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? Jesus was raised from the dead. He went up, and Peter says, Here's what's happening now the Spirit's coming down. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit upon you. He has sealed you as his own, as his people, as those who are Messiah ones, those who follow the Spirit-anointed King of Israel. This is who your leader is, and this is who you are. See, everyone who repented and believed on that day received the Holy Spirit. What happened next? I think that's a beautiful picture to ask what should happen next for us if we have the Holy Spirit as Messiah ones. Well, we're told in Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, communion, and to prayers. Not only that, verse 46 says that their hearts had a change. They were glad and generous, praising God and having favor with all people, and people were being added daily to their number. See, here's what we find. Those who see Jesus as king understand that they have joined Jesus and a new people. In fact, God gave us the Spirit for the very purpose of building up our local church, the body of Christ, our King. 
That's why 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 tells us to look like our King Jesus in sacrificial service for other believers here and now. So I'm just curious. In what ways do our lives look like those who have been united with Christ in the way that we are sacrificially loving one another here in the local church? What are ways that you're serving in the local church? What are ways that you are speaking into the lives of others? That you're meeting regularly with others to encourage them towards Christ? What are ways in which you are serving in the nursery? Not everybody can serve in the nursery, but most people can. What are ways that you are coming early to service and looking for new people so that you can speak to them about whether or not they know Christ and encourage them towards Jesus Christ? What are ways in which you are faithfully making it a priority to be at church on Sunday mornings simply to bless others with your presence so that you can edify them and be edified by them? What are ways that you are specifically and strategically praying for other brothers and sisters in Christ around you? You have brothers and sisters in Christ all around you who are crying out for help. They're saying, I'm lonely and I would love a spouse. I need help with my marriage. I, I, need, I need more resources. I don't have enough money to, to keep a roof on the house and, and bread on the table. What are ways that we are loving the body? All of those are activities of what it looks like where Jesus is king. Isn't that a beautiful place when people love people in that way? Friends, brothers and sisters, if we love Christ and he is our head and he is our king, then this community will gradually and progressively become more and more of a beautiful place that people want to come and find out who it is that we know. And that's, I think, the picture that we're going to find as we go through the book of For Samuel, this semester, we're going to find a David who is preparing us for the greatness of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that week in and week out. But let's go to that great Lord in prayer right now. Will you pray with me?